Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. As soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, 
that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. What a passage. This is a, a passage that we have spoken on for four or five years in a row on this day in the calendar. This is Pentecost Sunday. And as I said at the beginning of the meeting, this is really a capstone on the capstone of Easter. We talked about last week the ascension of Jesus Christ as our Lord ascended through the heavens to take his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. That was his place due, not only his position as Son of God, but due to his obedience as the perfect mediator, doing the will of the Father and expressing the Father's nature and heart to his disciples. And Jesus Christ, having died, having been crucified, was revived again, took up life forevermore, never to lose it, and took his place at the right hand. The reason he did this, as we saw last week, was I'm going away so that I can send you another helper. We spent some time in John 13, John 14 over the last few weeks, and we saw last week how Jesus had promised specifically that they were to wait in the city. And so as we see this begin to be fulfilled, we must see it not just in the local context of what Jesus promised, but also to see it in the entire scriptural context of the entire story of redemptive history. What do I mean by redemptive history? I mean all those acts and things which God has done throughout time with his people to bring about the fulfillment of that great promise that God gave, even in the midst of cursing the serpent, that there would be a seed that would emerge from Eve, and that seed would stomp out the serpent's head. And all throughout time, ever since then, God has been acting among his people by his spirit, finally with the sending of his son, to bring that promise to fruition. And here we see a great uh, wrapping up of a great number of threads, which we've discussed in the past. We've seen in years past on the day of Pentecost how it's the undoing of the Tower of Babel. And we're not going to be able to cover that today at all, but it just it, we'll see elements of it. But it's done in such a way as to establish the kingdom of Christ over and against the kingdom of man. The chief spirit at work in Babel was they wished to make a name for themselves. God comes down and confuses their language. And here at Pentecost, he comes down again by the Spirit and gives the disciples the ability to speak in the languages of men. And they speak forth the mighty deeds of God. And this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the undoing of everything that's gone wrong, so to speak. It's the undoing of the Tower of Babel, but it's also the beginning of the fulfillment of the commission that Christ gave to his disciples. 
So in looking at this, I want to look at this passage in Numbers as a precursor or a a prophecy of what takes place in Acts chapter 2. I want to look directly at Moses' prophecy. I do indeed believe that when he says, oh, that the Lord would put his spirit on all his people, I do believe that Moses is actually prophesying at that moment. He is speaking forth something on the nature and character of God's heart. And so I want to look at that prophecy in brief detail. I want to look at the circumstances around the nation of Israel when he gave that prophecy and why it's important that we see that in connection with their time in the wilderness. I want to look at the outpouring of the Spirit as the proof of Christ's reign over the nations. We saw last week how Jesus promised that when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. We saw how that promise to send the Spirit was a proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was not just a man who came back to life, but that as God and man, he has the right and power and authority to command the Spirit to go and be poured out upon the the church. And so when he says, I will cause or I will pour forth the Spirit or I will send upon you the promise of the Father, we saw that that was a proof of his divinity. But now this is a beginning of the proof of his reign. Not just that he went to the uh, right hand, but that he went to the right hand to begin his reign as the anointed Messiah, the one to sit on the throne of his father David to rule forever. I want to look at how that reign is then expressed upon the church, that is, all flesh in the church receive the Spirit, and that that uniquely anoints them to do ministry. And then finally, I want to give us some applications. I want to, I want to save application to the end because I, I think there are a number of different elements to these stories, these narratives, these faithful histories as recorded in Scripture, and that we can see a great change that must take place in our life if we're to live in step with the truth of what we hear in the scripture today. So at the beginning of this uh, account in Numbers 11, Yahweh commands Moses to appoint 70 elders. And these 70 elders are appointed to help him bear the burden of leading this nation through the wilderness. He had already led them up out of Egypt, rotting signs and wonders against the nation and had destroyed effectively their entire economy and kingdom and glory. God brought to nothing the nation of Egypt that his name would be known in greatness and in power among the Mediterranean nations of the time. He did that expressly so that later on, as we read, the hearts of the nations of the Canaanites would melt like wax, that they would hear of what happened to these mighty Egyptians and think to themselves, well, the Egyptians were the empire and we're just these... Bronze Age civilizations, small in number, without kings and without chariots. Woe are we if Yahweh should come here. And that's exactly what takes place. The nation of Israel begins to march through those territories, and Yahweh fights for them. But along the way, the nation of Israel began to grumble almost immediately. As soon as they were outside of Egypt, they begin to grumble against Moses. And in grumbling against Moses, Moses begins to bear on his soul the weight of their accusations and grumblings. Imagine the the turmoil that would take place just in a small handful of people being mad at you. Imagine having the entire wrath of a nation being directed at you. Just say something wrong on Twitter after you have a few thousand followers. 
But, but that's, that's remote from you. Moses dealt with this to his face. And so the people of Israel were treating their supposed deliverer with extreme, extreme evil. And so God, because of his love and care for Moses, tells Moses to appoint these 70 elders to help him bear the burden of the people. Yahweh is going to take of the same spirit who resides upon Moses, and he's going to place it on these other elders. Why? To distribute the wisdom and manifold teaching that they will need to get through that time. We see kind of a parallel passage. It's a little bit different, but Jethro gives him this sort of advice. You should appoint elders to be judges in the nation so that you don't have to decide every single dispute. At one point, someone comes to Jesus and argues something about an inheritance, and he says, who appointed me as a judge over you? Imagine having to decide thousands upon thousands of ethical or judicial cases. The weight that that would bear upon one's soul is unthinkable. I'm troubled even thinking about my own finances and family. Think about judging, as a, sitting as a judge over 600,000 people. It would be terrifying. And so God, out of his great love for Moses, tells him, appoint elders, distribute the load. And Jethro likewise gives the same advice. God does this in order to bring the people in health to the promised land. He does this out of love for the people. There will be disputes, even among good-hearted Christians. They will need resolved. Here, we have a sinful and rebellious people. How much more should we expect them to have terrible disputes? So God wishes to distribute the load, to multiply the spirit of wisdom in operation in a delegated authority. And so he tells Moses, establish elders and appoint them so that I could anoint them. Once this comes to pass, the elders, inspired by the Spirit's anointing, begin to prophesy. And they prophesy in such a way as to uh, expound upon or magnify the glory of God, probably recounting what he had done in Egypt, but also telling forth the future. To prophesy is not merely to tell, foretell the future. A great misconception of prophecy is it's like a Christian tarot thing or a Christian you know, uh, psychic hotline. It's just the Jesus version of looking into... Brothers and sisters, that is not what prophecy is, although it sometimes includes that. Scriptural prophecy, of course, includes that. But prophecy is not just to tell forth the future, but it does include that because the future is expressly God's. God is the author and creator of time, and he wields it according to his purpose. And so to prophesy the deeds of God necessarily will include speaking about the future, that grace will be magnified, that the redemptive history will become more and more thorough and, and solidified, like a, like a good wine appreciating an age and taste. Over time, it matures. Bread takes time to rise and, f and become full. Everything in God's kingdom in the future is going to be larger and greater. And so to prophesy about God's greatness sometimes includes speaking about the future, but not only that, it also means to speak forth the deeds of God. It's sp simply speaking forth the glory of God in the anointing of God, setting forth the promise of his redemption. That is what scriptural prophecy really is. It's a promise of a greater fulfillment or a greater manifestation of the promise coming to fruition or to, to fulfillment. 
The Spirit, therefore, designates these elders to encourage the people. They're not just to act as judges. They also have the responsibility of reminding the people, here's where we came from. Here's where we're going. And here's how we have to conduct ourselves on the way. These elders were not chiefly to just speak forth, you know, in the future, Benjamin, son of Elab, will have three goats one day, and then there will be a fifth goat. And it's not these little ridiculous details of life. It is actually a reminder of the grand purposes of God in the people. Why? Because at this point, the people were rebelling against Moses, saying and claiming that you've brought us out here to die. They had so forgotten the promise and they had so forgotten even their former bondage just months prior that they begin to say it would be better to go back to Egypt. If you remember the story of the Exodus, as we recalled just a minute ago, there was nothing left to go back to. And so their delusion is a spiritual delusion. The idea of returning to Egypt as if it, that was a better alternative than pressing forward to the promised land, is nothing short of spiritual blindness. This is the condition of sinful men. This is the condition of a people who've heard of the ear, but do not have anything in reality of heart. This is why God established the elders, to remind the people, to be a buffer between Moses and the people, to warn them saying, don't become hard in heart. Trust in the promises of God. You can't see it now. We're, we're in a sandy place. We're in a dry place, but we're going to a land with milk and honey. God's going to give us vineyards that we didn't have to, to plant. He's going to give us cisterns that we don't have to dig. We're going to inherit the economy, and it's going to be served up for us. Let's just persevere. That's why God gives these elders. He gives these elders to tell forth and remind them of what God had done in Egypt. These elders have a foretaste of the glory that is to come, but instantaneously Joshua is jealous. I think it's interesting that the the writer here records and reminds, he says, Joshua was with Moses from his youth. That Joshua had loved serving Moses so greatly that he had kind of propped Moses up on a pedestal and, and become somewhat Uh, confused about Moses' role, Moses responds to Joshua's jealousy with incredulity. He's he's amazed that he's concerned more with with his own pride or with his pride for his spiritual leader, spiritual father, than he is that the people would be blessed. Moses, in this way, is a great foreshadowing and type of the heart of the Messiah, isn't he? He says that I desire that the people would be blessed even if it would malign my authority or, or put me down you know, at a lower level in the eyes of the people. This is exactly what we see with Paul in Romans 8, uh, uh, 8 through 11. He, he says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they would be saved. I wish that I could be accursed if I could trade that for the, for the people coming in. And indeed, that is exactly what our our Lord went through. But here, Moses begins to respond to the jealousy of Joshua, and he responds by telling forth the future. He prophesies. Though Moses has a glorious ministry, indeed, perhaps the greatest ministry in Scripture besides Christ himself, he does not respond and take, he doesn't join Joshua in in his his jealousy for his own role, he considers himself to be like John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he was being told that the 
the people were beginning to follow Christ or his disciples were going. And he responds, a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. We celebrated a wedding yesterday and all the, the, brides, uh, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, 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 all of them were, had a task and it was to see that this thing took place, that we got them hitched. The groomsmen love the groom, and the groom is the one who has the bride. Therefore, what it means to be a spiritual authority figure in God's house is therefore to honor the bride by loving the groom and not being jealous that the groom is the one who has the bride. That's what, he's, that's what John is saying. The one who has the bride is the groom. And the friend of the bridegroom, or the friend of the groom, the groomsmen, love to hear the voice. What, what, in that, what is he talking about? He's saying that the groom has arrived. When the groom announces his arrival, the friends of the groom, the, the groomsmen, they celebrate because of their great love for the groom and honor and respect for the bride. The point is that Moses loves the bride. And by loving the bride, he doesn't attempt to steal the glory of the bride. He wishes for the bride to be beautified and glorified, to receive the spirit. He doesn't wish to malign her, nor even keep any of the glory for himself. He wishes that the people would be benefited, even if it meant in the eyes of some of the people that he was pulled down a peg or two. Moses says, verse 29, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that, the, that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses, by the spirit of God, looks forward in faith to the time in which the Lord will pour forth his spirit upon all people. And instead of desiring spiritual prestige, Moses longs for this day. Why does he long for it? Because Moses knows that this was the heart of God for the nation. When the nation was pulled out of Egypt, when, when, when God ripped apart Egypt to pull forth this people, he did so that they would become a kingdom of priests. And a kingdom of priests doesn't mean they just all wear nice religious garb and they all go to church and do churchy things together. No, it means that they are priests for the surrounding nations. That the point of the nation of Israel, they were to act as mediators of the glory of God from God through his people in Israel to the surrounding nations. This was, I believe, the heart of God, even from day one of the Exodus, that they were to be a kingdom of priests, not mediating one for another, but mediating between God and the nations around them. And so just as with Moses, so also with Christ. I believe Moses is a type and a foreshadowing here, and he is the one who is pointing forward to Christ. So just as Moses was appointed to appoint other elders, so also Jesus is raised up and anointed with the Spirit in order that that same Spirit would be put on his disciples. After Moses was presented before Yahweh, Yahweh takes some of the Spirit that was on Moses. Now that isn't Moses' Spirit, just to be clear. It's not the Spirit of Moses. It's not like Moses contributed something to the Holy Spirit. But rather the Spirit which Moses had. It's kind of like, for example, um, you know, if you have an attribute of, or you own something, you, know, you could say, I took some of the money that this person had and gave it to that other person. It's not that I became money or, or that money was transferred that 
it was essentially this person than that person. It's that they had this. The, the money isn't identified with the person. Um, think about uh, also like this. If you have, let's say you have some department and you've got a head of a department, maybe perhaps the administrator, and you then take some of the authority and you make a vice administrator. It's, it's not that you've taken the essence of the person, you've taken the role and the authority and you've divided, you've multiplied it. So the, the point is this, that Moses resides as one who has the spirit upon him, and that spirit which is upon him is then distributed to the other elders. What does this mean? It means that this is a charismatic leadership. What do I mean by that? I mean it's not a leadership by fiat. It wasn't as if Moses got to appoint the elders and then they were able to reign or to rule. These elders had to be anointed by the Spirit. They had to be able to operate with the same heart and character of Moses. This happens exactly as it happens with Christ. Peter says later on in Acts 2, not part of our reading for today, but certainly part of the idea of what we're speaking about today, Peter tells the people that this took place with Christ. Christ, having been exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. We saw last week how Jesus said, I'm going to the Father's right hand, and having received the Spirit, he will then take that Spirit which is upon him and put it upon his disciples. Through the outpouring of the Spirit, therefore, we see tangible fruit of the beginning of Christ's reign upon the throne. He goes, Peter identifies the reception of the Holy Spirit with his exaltation at the right hand. And in biblical speech, this is kind of saying, Peter's saying these are synonymous. That is to say, his reign at the right hand, he was anointed by the Spirit of God to reign and that anointing took place at the same time as his session, his seating down, his sitting down at the right hand. And so the right hand and the power of the Spirit are together one. The Spirit is um, the, um, I'm, I'm looking for a word here, effluence. I think that's the right word I want. The Spirit is essentially the flavor of his reign. The Holy Spirit is given to him to accomplish his reign, but likewise the Spirit desires to produce that reign in his people. Through the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, therefore, we see this tangible fruit immediately. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one, the one who is anointed for the purpose of reigning on the throne of David. Why? Because God gave a promise to David in 2 Samuel, you will never lack a man to sit on the throne. And as the righteous son of David, Jesus Christ is anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that promise. And as one who is fulfilling that promise, he greatly magnifies the reign of David. Christ's throne, therefore, is not an earthly throne in Jerusalem. When Christ began to reign, King Herod was still alive. He was still having his little puppet fiefdom, his little tiny kingdom that he thought he owned. He wasn't even a real Jew. He had no right to sit on that throne, yet he was installed and had the backing of the Romans. Even so, Christ begins to reign while not only Herod is still alive, but also Caesar is still over in Rome. And he begins to execute his reign through the outpouring of the Spirit. 
But it's no surprise that Christ's reign is greatly magnified, for even Solomon, who was the son of David, the little s son of David, had a reign that extended outside the boundaries of the nation of Israel. And so it boggles the mind to say that, well, when Christ really reigns, he will just really reign over the nation of Israel as, as if his reign is limited to one geopolitical people group. His reign from the very beginning is over all the nations, and the fruit and proof of that is exactly what takes place in Acts 2, as we're about to see. And there's hints of this throughout the entire scriptures, as we talked about, that In Genesis 10, there's a description of the nations who arise from Noah's children. And then in Genesis 11, those nations are distributed among the earth. But it's important to see that in the recording of the nations in Genesis 10, the number 70 begins to be extremely important and extremely clear. 70 is the biblical number that is a touchstone or an identifier of these are the nations of men on the earth. These are the people groups who will exist on the earth. Now there are more than 70 nations that we know about today, but at the time in the scriptures, 70 was a number that clearly indicated that these were the nations of men. So it's no surprise, therefore, when we understand that the people of Israel were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, that Moses would appoint 70 specific elders. It's symbolic. They They weren't to actually leave Israel and go be... In those other countries, the point is that they were supposed to represent the nation of Israel to those nations and the covenants of God to those peoples. Significantly, Jesus does the exact same thing, although this is tentative. Some manuscripts say 72, other manuscripts say 70. Jesus appoints 70 disciples and he gives them some measure of anointing and they go out and they invade the land. Why? They go to the places that Jesus himself was about to go. This is exactly what Jesus, I believe, is pointing to. This is why Christ commissioned the apostles to disciple all of the nations. Why? Because he has the right. He says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to me. Therefore, go. In the light of the fact that I have all authority, go to every single nation. Do not stay only in Israel. Go get the Gentiles in every place. And this is exactly why Jesus begins to do this at the day of Pentecost, is because his reign has begun, and the proof of that reign, or the fulfillment of that reign, is taking place from day one of the church's ministry. Though he had all authority, he commanded them to wait, and as soon as they are clothed with power, they begin to obey their commission. It should be at some point when you're reading the Bible over the years, you will get to the place where you can kind of, just like if you're listening to good music, especially classical music or any Western music that isn't too avant-garde, you you can hear the next note before it gets there. It should be no surprise to us that there are a great multitude of nations waiting in the city of Jerusalem on day one after they are clothed with power. Why? Because they couldn't have traveled to all these nations on day one. Christ is making it exceedingly clear, I have all authority, I already own the nations. I think it's, is it Psalm 2, ask of me? Ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance. This is the anointed one, right? The nations of the earth, they take their stand against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed one. 
saying, let us tear off the bindings of his fetters. He rules them with a rod of iron because he has the right to rule them with a rod of iron. He goes and tracks them down with the gospel of grace because he has the right to. And Jesus Christ does this from day one. He's making it clear and plain. He's got it all. He owns it all. He's going to receive the glory of it all. The Moravian Brotherhood that uh, existed about, I guess, 900 years ago from this point, they, they had a, well, maybe 600 years, I don't know. Beyond the point, they had, a, they had a motto, they had a rallying cry, they had a purpose for why they were sending out missionaries, and it was this, oh, that the lamb would receive the reward of his sufferings. That is what they saw as their mission for going to the nations. We just married two people who have it on their heart one day, hopefully, to go to another nation. Oh, that the lamb would receive the reward of his sufferings in the nation of India. That is their heart cry. That is what these disciples are invited into on day one. And they are, they are ready for the task because they've been anointed by the task. And interestingly enough, as, as we see the promise beginning to be fulfilled, that they're going to go to all of the nations, each element begins to be magnified. If we look back to Numbers 11, during Moses' day, only two people, Eldad and Medad, prophesied among the people. The others prophesied at the temple, or at the, at the tabernacle, at the tent, excuse me. They, they prophesied among other people who already knew the, the glory of God. They were all tasting of the glory of God in that moment, and yet Eldad and Medad, somehow they didn't get the memo. They were off in the camp, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes upon them anyway. Isn't that good to know that if you're not in the right place, God will find you. Um, they, they begin to prophesy among the camp, among the commoners. But now at this point, over a dozen different nations hear 120 disciples telling in our own tongue the mighty deeds of God. This is exactly the point. God is, God is bringing this to f- fruition, to fulfillment. Just like when you make a, a a loaf of bread. I love making bread, so I'm, I, I can't escape this now. When you put the yeast in the bread, it's already done. You don't have to touch it for like an hour or two until it's time to divide it or shape it or punch it down. But you don't have to do anything. The yeast is in the bread. It's in the pudding, so to speak, and it's going to take time, but it begins to expand. On certain loaves of bread that I've made, you can get it about three or four times larger than the shape when you initially formed the loaf. And it's an amazing parable or symbol. Everything in God's kingdom is beginning to expand. The elders with Moses prophesied for a very short time and stopped. They had a duty to perform. They began to execute their office, but it is clear from the passage, it says, they prophesied and then, and then ceased. But as the history of Acts tells us, later on in just Acts 4, it's, there's a summary statement that Luke's, Luke gives us. It says, they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Over and over again, the, the, the apostles are praying to God, asking God to take note of the threats of the people and give them boldness anyway. Why? So that they could speak. That they would be filled with the Holy Spirit so that they could speak the gospel in that culture. But now instead of upon the elders alone, the spirit is given for the people. 
This is what Moses was longing for, that the, that the Lord would put his spirit on all God's people. Joel adds his voice to Moses' prophecy, and he tells of this time, he tells of this time specifically, where the Lord was going to pour out his spirit on all the people. Interestingly, I think Joel highlights this in his prophecy, that it wasn't just on the men, and it wasn't just even on the adults. Any culture, any society can be graded on its regard of elderly and the the immediately young. Our culture fails that test catastrophically. The point is that Joel is talking about the goodness of God in sending forth his spirit, and he highlights two classes of people. It shall be on the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Notice who's missing. Normal adult males. Normal adult females. I think they're included, and young is a relative term. But here, Joel highlights young men, young women, sons and daughters, and your old men shall dream dreams. Look at this, another class of people that is unexpected, even on my male servants and my female servants. Everybody in the house drinks wine. Joel describes the entire community of God, the church as called to testify publicly of those things which the Lord has spoken. God gives a commandment to Joel to prophesy of a time before the terrible day of the Lord, and that prophecy includes the Spirit being poured upon all flesh in his house. The vision, therefore, and the identity and mission of God's people is dynamically clarified. It is not just elders who are ordained or priests who have the right to enter beyond the veil who have the authority and power and responsibility indeed to speak forth the promises of God but indeed everyone in God's house is supposed to prophesy to utter forth dreams visions it's not just for wonderful charismatic gifts I do love and believe me if you saw my prayer closet you would sometimes think I was a little weird I love the charismatic gifts, but the charismatic gifts are not dis- divorced from the spreading of the gospel. They're for that. They're for the edification of the church. They're for the beautification of God's people. They're for the strengthening of God's house and the zeal of its individual members so that they would be empowered to spread forth the gospel. What, what, what do we see Peter do? He stands up in the very same city where just a few weeks earlier, six to seven weeks earlier, they had murdered the Lord, who he had denied out of fear, and now he publicly, in the public square, with all of the uh, surrounding region taking notice of him, he begins to issue a sermon establishing the, the Messiahship of Jesus and indicting them for his murder. That is not something that is produced in anyone who has any human fear any longer. The Holy Spirit produces his effect in Peter immediately, and Peter is faithful to the task. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This and this alone is the chief message of the church. We have one role to preach to a dying world away from God, foreign to God's ways and purposes and dealings. We have one message, Jesus Christ, is necessary for you to be saved. That is the one who, upon whom you must call. That is the one whom 
you must trust in and cling to. So I want to give us three applications. How should we respond to these events? I, I want to put it forth in three specific ways. First, we ought to receive the gracious king's reign over every area of our lives. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be one who has voluntarily bowed the knee to Jesus' reign now, and that is only possible by him remaking you, by delivering you from your rebellion through the hearing of the promise of the gospel that you would be transformed, and then from there, so far as you are able, cooperating with the grace of God to submit everything to his lordship. What does that mean? Can I be a Christian and engage in pornography on the side? No. Christ, Christ died for me to be set free. I was bought with a price. That's what Paul reasons. Can I love Christ and yet treat my wife terribly? No, I can't. Christ loves her. And as a Christian, someone who's been transformed by the love of Christ, I have to love her. Can I love Christ but still be angry at my parents for the way they raised me? No. Jesus told us, unless you forgive, your, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. The point is this, that as so far as we've received the graciousness of this king, so also we wish to submit everything in life as soon as we either are taught about it or find, find more clarity about that thing, as soon as we have knowledge about an issue that is outside of his reign is to make it submit to his reign. It's like weeding the garden. You've got a garden established, and yet out of nowhere, new weeds and seeds fly in. Birds come by. The air brings in a seed. What do you have to do? Every day you should weed your garden. That's, that's the point of what I'm getting at is, is that Christ's reign is a gracious reign. We're invited to submit our, uh, to, to bow our knee voluntarily through responding to the gospel, though we are commanded to respond to the gospel. And at the same time, his reign is not a harsh reign. This is not a tyrannical kingdom, though he is a good king. The point is this, that we have areas of our life that are under more or less agreement to the kingdom of Christ. And as so far, insofar as we know of those areas which are not, we ought to bring them to submit to his reign. The second thing that we must do is we must renounce the way of the world in cherishing ethnic lineage over and against the identity of this king. The chief issue in the larger societal uh, narrative of our time is racial tension. Apart from political issues and apart from the issues of the economy and debt and the issues of abortion, other than those three, if I had to put it in my top five things that our culture is warring against the knowledge of God in today, it is this, that I am primarily identified by my ethnicity or by my skin color or by who I am <clears throat> as either a German-American or an Irish Catholic-American or, or what have you. This is, this is the chief problem in our country specifically. It's, it's the thing which dominates media narratives. It's the thing which dominates indeed a lot of pervasive uh, mental space, even of Christians. And we seek to appropriate God's grace at just resolving racial reconciliation, but we don't do it according to the gospel. We do it in some sort of, let's try to repair the sins of our fathers. But I believe that clearly these ethnic groups who were seen in, in Acts 2, they come together 
And at the end of this passage in Acts 2, there's this amazing new community that takes place where they're sharing meals together. There's table fellowship, not just in a spiritual sense or in a, in a taking the Eucharist together, they're doing life together. One of the reasons I think our church has such a great beginning steps of that fulfillment of, of bringing racial reconciliation to happen is we are not chiefly examining it in a racialism lens. We are not looking at the surface things and trying to use man's effort, man's power, or man's strategies to bring about a unification of different cultures. But insofar as we all renounce our sinful human cultures, which we may have received through either our parents or through the places we lived or the the people we had friends with, as we renounce those cultures and adopt Christ's cultures, racial reconciliation happens. So what do I mean by this? I mean that in churches, we should meet with people who we don't know or look like or talk like, and we should press through the somewhat difficult things with grace and forgiveness for one another when we step on each other's toes, and we should become friends because we have a great king who made us his friend first. And that becoming his friend, we can become each other's friends. That's how you make a friend. You know somebody or you introduce yourself. Christ knows his other friends, and we can, by knowing him, know his friends. But, but not only that, we also should be very intentional in spreading the gospel with people who are not like us. And what I mean by that is who are not like us on the externals, because there is one father of all, right? Okay, so doing racial reconciliation in Christ because of what happens here in Acts 2. These nations were brought together as a people group. And then finally, the third one is, we should individually and as a people earnestly desire the Spirit of God for this express end, although there will be many effects along the way, is that it is the vital ingredient to share the gospel. No amount of human wisdom, organization, or preparation can ever accomplish the work that the Spirit alone can do in the heart. You can... You can work as hard as you like. You can speak as eloquently as possible. You can memorize as much scripture. But unless the Holy Spirit is anointing you to speak forth the word of God, to prophesy, then there will be no intended effect. The word of God will have its effect and the preaching of the gospel will bear fruit. But I believe that insofar as we are able, we should ask for God's blessing on that mission, not to go out and do it on our own. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would allow us to understand your word and that by understanding it, we would be able to see a beautiful vision of what you've done in the past and are doing now today through your church by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from the zeitgeist of our, of our time that seeks to have harmony around just human, uh, humanistic concerns but rather, Lord, that we would look to your son and that, that, that vision of who he is and what he's doing in his gracious reign, that being transformed by his love and grace, we would be so thoroughly transformed that it would affect everything in our lives. Lord, we do ask that you would raise up in this church many, many people who have the anointing of your spirit who can speak forth your gospel to people that may not look like them or people that Uh, aren't in the same economic strata, 
Lord, that you would allow your grace to run rapidly and it would gain influence. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to uh, take hold of this and that we would truly seek you through prayer, that you would pour out your spirit once again on your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.